Morning. My wife, Kayla, and I went on a date this week, and uh, as we're going to take Titus uh, where he needs to go, as we're going on our date, uh, he likes to cry sometimes. If you have a nine-month-old, you know how that is. And uh, what we have found works really, really well is if we turn on music. Kid loves music, and if we turn on music, he just stops crying immediately. And so in the process of turning on the music, we're going through the stations to uh, bypass all of the ads and talk radio to get to a song. And uh, we landed on a country station, and a new country song uh, came out, uh, whose first line in the song is, I only talk to God when I need a favor. Uh, It's actually a really popular country song. Uh, And uh, it continues by saying, I only talk to God when I need a favor, and I only pray when I've got no prayer. So who am I to expect a Savior? I mean, honestly, his lack of prayer, uh, he also has some fairly decent theology to, to assess that, yeah, you know, I don't have a relationship with God. I tend to go to God when I just want something. Uh, and then he goes on by says, you know, if I only talk to God when I need a favor, like, how do I expect a Savior? But he says, but God, I need a favor. He's like, I know that this is not how it works, but... You're going to do what I want you to do anyway because you're God and and I'm me and I know you want to answer my prayers. And so uh, it keeps going, however, when he says, yeah, I know I owe you more than one. I assume he means prayer. I owe you more than one prayer and beggars can't be choosers, but I'll I'll pay for all I've done. Just please don't let me lose her. Okay, so obviously the whole topic and subject of this prayer came down to the reality that he didn't want to lose his girlfriend. And uh, he's like, you know, God, I don't ever talk to you, but I tell you what, when I mess up and uh, I've, I've really done my girl wrong, uh, I want you to show up and I want you to fix my problem as I see it. Now, the problem with this uh, comes from the fact that as we, we look at our culture and we look at society and we look at even songs like this, who, I mean, you make no mistake about it, you know, he is singing a prayer as he sees it. Uh, and don't, don't make any mistake about it, that this is an influential song that teaches so many people, oh, this, is, this is just what it means to pray. We're in the South, he's country, which means he's Christian, right? Country equals Christian, right, in our society, right? So this must be how we do it, all right? I, I, I should only go to God when I need a favor. I know that's not how it should work, but he did it, and, and so why not me? Uh, one of the problems that we run into as, uh, as Christians in our society Uh, is we are inundated with a lot of platforms, whether that's social media, whether that's influencers, all of the streaming devices that you have these days, and you have a temptation to be taught a lot of things in a lot of different ways that takes your attention every day, and it keeps you from learning about things that are necessary for you, including your prayer life, from the Lord, from his word. And if we're not careful, uh, we may not, when we read lyrics like Jelly Roll, which is the artist who wrote this song, all right, when we, we look at him and we're like, okay, you know, it's not great, but I guess, you know, all prayer is prayer, right? Well, that's wrong, right? All prayer is not prayer, which is a cultural reality that people in our society want you to believe that all prayer is prayer. God hears all prayer. I mean, how many of you heard it? Like, it don't matter. God's hearing all prayer all the time. Raise your hand if you've heard that. And raise your hand now if you're lying, because you have heard that, right? We've all heard that, right? Uh, but the problem is, is when we live in this society where we just say, no, nah, God hears all prayer, indifferent, God just hears every prayer, we miss the whole thrust of Scripture, particularly in the New Testament, when you literally have Jesus saying right here, last week saying, don't pray like this, don't pray like this, okay? Well, there's a way not to pray because he says this, don't pray like the hypocrites, Don't pray like the Gentiles or synonymous. Don't pray like the pagans, right? But then this week he says, when you pray, pray like this. So here's what we need to understand as Christians is God cares how you pray. Like It does matter to God how you pray. And so any prayer is not Christian prayer. Only the way God teaches us how to pray would qualify as biblical Christian prayer. And anything else would be counterfeit prayer. And here's the danger with counterfeit prayer. 
Counterfeit prayer is cloaking pagan prayer, or like we talked about last week, or, or uh, hypocritical prayer. It's cloaking it in some kind of Christian religion, right? And saying, listen, I, I understand that it may not be the, the way that the Bible teaches, but I believe that God hears all prayer. And so all you're doing is trying to cloak some kind of Christianity around your hypocritical or, or pagan prayer, and you're kind of throwing it out there and saying, see, I'm praying. Now, the problem with that is when you believe that's what prayer is, you're doing little more than making demands to God, expecting Him to answer your needs. And when it comes to that, and if that's how we're praying, our prayer becomes little more than reaching out to a cosmic genie. Okay? And the problem with that becomes this. God is not our cosmic genie. God is not in a lamp who we, we kind of dust it off and rub it on the side and the big blue man pops out and says, hey, what do you need me to do for you today? But too often, this is not only how our society thinks about prayer, but this is how so many Christians think about prayer. Like, it may not be a genie in a bottle, but it's a, a Bible over there sitting in the corner of your room collecting dust, and you're doing life on your own without acknowledging God as the creator of the universe, the Lord and the Savior of your life, and one to whom his kingdom is coming and his will is going to be done. Instead of seeing him like that, you see that Bible saying over there, and when your life becomes uncontrollable because you have either sinned in such a way where your life uh, is now out of your control, or something has happened outside of your control that has made your life just miserable, then you run over there to this Bible, and you blow the dust off of it, and we flip that bad boy open, and then we sound a lot like Jelly Roll. I only talk to God when I need a favor, and I only pray when I got no prayer. God, I know I can't expect a lot from you, but I need your favor, and I need you to listen to me. So we giggle at the lyrics at the beginning, but now we're thinking our prayers are often not so different than the prayer that we heard on the radio. Instead, we need to recognize this, and it's really the main point this morning, is to pray effectively about your needs means that you must keep God's economy at the forefront of your prayers. Right? If you want to pray effectively, you must keep God's economy at the forefront of your prayers. And this is ex exactly what we see in what we call the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, starting in verse 9. And if you haven't already, open your Bible to Matthew chapter 6, Verses 9, we'll start there and go to verses 15. Uh, and if you're tempted not to open your Bible, I want to encourage you to open your Bible. You don't want to take my word for it. You want to take God's word for it. So open up your Bible. I want you to look at the text as we move through it. As we've already committed to saying that God cares how you pray. If God did not care, Jesus would not have said, this is how you ought to pray. As a matter of fact, we see in one of the synoptic gospels, uh, that Jesus uh, is asked by his disciples, Lord, Master, teach us how to pray. And Jesus says, this is how you are to pray. And notice something when it comes to the words that I'm using, uh, when it comes to the way that our culture looks at the Lord's Prayer. So whether you grew up in our culture where you prayed the Lord's Prayer at every football game, any football players in here, you ever prayed this right before? Yeah, yeah, me too, okay. Uh, whether, whether, even if you didn't play football, I'm sure other sports did the same thing. Or maybe you came from a Catholic background uh, and you recited this prayer over and over again in, in, uh, when you were at Catholic Mass, and you're like, yeah, I know the prayer, I don't really know what it means. There's your problem, okay. Uh, because Jesus says, I'm going to teach you how to pray, not necessarily the what to pray. And so from what I mean by that is when we look at this text, so many people, including when you go to Mass, they're concerned what you're saying. You need to say this. You need to say these words. You need to say it in this succession. You need to say it. Uh, even uh, early Christians uh, had, a, uh, had a rules for worship uh, back in the second and third century where they said you need to pray this prayer three times a day, much like uh, the Jewish prayer that they would also stop two or three times a day to pray. They had already uh, enveloped this in Christian ideas, and we're saying this isn't the point. The point isn't that you pray these exact words. The point is you need to pray like this. This is how you pray. This is a template that should uh, surround every prayer that we pray. So it's not that you have to pray these exact words. It's just that you would pray like this when you pray. So to simplify it, Jesus gives us six petitions in this prayer. Six petitions. 
Uh, and to simplify it even further, we're going to look at uh, this in two halves. There are three petitions on the front end and three on the back end that are going to help you understand exactly what the Lord's Prayer is all about. And I expect, if you will uh, hone in, you will pray that the Lord would open your eyes and your ears and your heart to this message that it will change your entire life. It will change your prayer life, change the way that you think about God and the way that you commune with God in prayer. If you will understand what Jesus is getting at when he looks at the Lord's prayer and he teaches us how to pray. Now, the first three petitions, you can at least uh, entitle them this if you're taking notes, right? His name, his kingdom, and his will. So if we think about the first three petitions, we're really just thinking about this. When I pray, uh, here's how I need to pray. God's economy. I need to recognize how God values and how God thinks about his name, his kingdom, and his will. If I get those things right in my prayer, it's going to keep the rest of my prayer right in line with the will of God. And so as we do that, why don't we uh, write this? We can at least sum this up in point number one, and then we'll go through it uh, phrase by phrase. Point number one, I want you to write it this way. You need to pray with a high view of God. Pray with a high view of God. It's really what the first three petitions do is they focus and they turn our mind to God. So as we do that, we can look at the first three petitions and understanding this, that when Jesus says to pray, he says, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So as we take this apart, we need to recognize a couple of things. Something really unique in the Christian faith. You see it a little bit in the first century Judaism, but you really see it expanded and focused on in the Christian faith. And it's the fact that they call Yahweh, the God of the universe, Father. It's really important. If you know a little bit about your languages, you know the New Testament's written in Greek, and the Greek word for Father is, is pater, and then we understand that the language that they spoke in was Aramaic. That's the language most likely that Jesus and the disciples spoke. And so we understand that the Aramaic word for father is Abba. And so he says, Abba, this is my father. Right? This is a term of familial relationship. Uh, it is a term of endearment, of a connection between me and my dad. But this is often easy for us to understand, which is why I like to not spend so much time on it, because this is a part of God's character that you can connect with, that you recognize so well, because our culture has done a great job of diminishing God to the point where we bring him down and make him like us. What I want you to do instead is to recognize why it's so significant that we can call God Father. It's because when we look at this text and we look at the rest of Scripture, it says, Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. When we think about God, we should think about this, the transcendence of God, that God is highly exalted, that God is on his throne. He exists, think about this, outside of time and space, where it says that he is enthroned in the heavens and the earth is his footstool. Okay? So when you pray, recognize that you pray in this big spherical planet called God's footstool. Okay? And that should change a little bit of the way you think about God. He's enthroned in heaven, and it says the heavens are his throne and the earth is his footstool. It should, I hope, take you to this place of God being my grandpa down the road, right? To, uh, for, or from God being the man upstairs to being God is enthroned over the heavens. And the place that I live, that I focus on so much, that all my time is spent thinking about, wondering about, all my prayers are enveloped and how I can get this thing, how I can get that thing, you're just talking about things in God's footstool. And I want you to think about your own footstool. Do you think much about your footstool? You don't, right? Because it's pretty minor part of the furniture that you have in your house. And this reality that when we think about the earth according to... The Bible, it says that it is, among other things, the footstool of God. And when I think about that, I think about this. We are of little stature. 
in the universe, and we are of little stature when it comes to the realities of the infinite God. I also think about God, and I think about the beings in the heavens, whether it be the cherubim and the angels and the hosts of heaven. They sing a song every day, every second of every day, although outside of time and space in our world, every day, day and night, they sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And from eternity past, which you know what that means, so as far as you can think back, go now to eternity, which is infinite in time and space, and eternity present, which means every single second that you and I in time and space think about right now, and eternity future, which is now all the way until infinity, this is the song being sung to the God on the throne whose earth is his footstool, is being sung, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Now... I want to, I'm trying to paint a picture for you of the Bible's picture of who God is. Because oftentimes in our culture, it's so easy to make God so much like us that we forget who he really is. And that is not like us. Like you are you, and he is him. Said in another way, uh, throughout the ages in Christian philosophy and, and theology, is this, that there is God, and then there is everything else. Think about it. There is God and there is everything else. There is the uncreated God and then there is everything that is created. You and I, we find ourselves in the other category, which means that there is nothing on earth or in the heavens or in the universe that will ever find itself in the presence of holy God without holy God bringing that created thing into his presence. Okay, we got a good picture? And yet, this text says, here's how you need to pray. Our Father. He's our Father. If you're a Christian in here, that means you've recognized your sin before a holy God. You've turned from your sin, placed your trust in the person and work of Christ on the cross. You have this stewardship and this privilege that no man, no woman on earth ever has that you get this privilege to look at the God of the universe who sits enthroned over the heavens and you get to call him Father, we pray with a high view of God. You need to recognize that when we say the first subpoint, our Father in heaven, which is the first subpoint there, our Father in heaven, we're saying a couple of things. He is our Father, familiarly, relationally, He's our Dad, He's our Father. But He's also not like you and me. There is God, and then there is everything else. There is our Father, but He is enthroned in the heavens. He is transcendent, outside of time and space. He is an infinite God. I'm not asking you to comprehend it. I'm just saying you ought to know you can't comprehend it. I'm not going to sit here and preach on comprehending the eternal God. I'm just saying he's an eternal God that you get to pray to in time and space. And that should be sufficient enough for you to say, here is God and then everything else. When you pray, pray that also in the context of he's my father. He's our Father. Now, on an earthly context, I want you to also recognize this. Although you may be able, and we often do in our culture, we want to relegate God to little more than you and me, uh, we still need to recognize the term Father, which even most of us, when we think of Father uh, here, and we're like, yeah, God's our Father. He's like us. We still need to recognize what Father is in Scripture in our culture, particularly Christianity particularly the Bible's representation of Father. You can make God and think about God as your Father, but you must rep recognize the representation of Father is still head of the house. Right? That may not be super uh, comfortable and super applauded in our culture, but we still recognize that the Father, according to Scripture, is the head of his house. That is, God is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of man. Man is the head of his wife, and then they are, have their children under that. That's literally the layers of authority in the Christian home. And so when we think about God, according to Scripture, as our, as our Father, we still have to recognize something really, really important. The title Father, however familial it is, still holds a superior standing in your life. And you don't have to have a great father. 
Uh, I don't have to get into you about my life with my biological father. We don't have to sit here and tell war stories about how this and that our fathers were. I'm not concerned about how your father was. I'm concerned that you recognize what a father is, and you find that not by always looking at your father, but looking at your heavenly father. Because the father that we have in our lives is the ideal father. The father who loves you and cares about you, cares about your needs, but is ultimately in charge. To think about a God who's in charge, who also cares about your needs, and to think about a father who cares over his home and loves his wife like Christ loves the church and disciplines his children and brings them up into the wisdom of the Lord, that's a father I could get behind. As a matter of fact, a father I could submit myself under. And that's the kind of God that we serve, a God who cares about your needs, but a God who is still superior to you in standing in position that you are to submit yourself under the authority of God. And so we, even when we talk about God being our Father and we bring it into terms that we can understand, there is still no mistake about it that He is still, even in the most earthly terms as our Father, the authority figure in our lives, the one to whom that we submit ourselves knowing that He loves and cares for us and wants to make sure that our needs are taken care of, but that we would still live in ultimate submission to His will and authority. The second one, the second subpoint there is that holy is your name. Like I've already mentioned earlier, that God is transcendent. When we talk about holy, we talk about hallowed, which is, is a very old English word. Uh, it comes from the Greek word hagiadzo, which just means holy, sanctified consecrated. I mean, this is the idea when we say that hallowed be your name, holy is your name, that we need to recognize something a little bit different than that we think in the, the English culture when it comes to a name and an adjective, okay? Uh, simply meaning this, that in the Hebraic culture, a name, particularly when we say hallowed be your name, we recognize that the name Holy, the name God, what we call God, says something about who he is. Okay, I'll give you an example. Uh, in the Old Testament, you have Abram, and his name became? Okay, all right, that's a good one. We have Sarai, her name became? All right, you have Jacob, his name became? Okay, why all these name changes? Okay, why, why are we doing this? Like, you know, we, people have become useful to God in the Old Testament, and God changes their name. Okay, I became a Christian. Nobody changed my name. I'm still Hayden. I, would, I wanted to be like Chad or Jeff. No, I'm still Hayden. Okay, uh, why the name change? Well, we don't think about names the same way that they thought about names in Hebrew culture. See, Abram meant father. Abraham meant father of a multitude. Okay, so think about that. The promise of Abraham from God was, I will make you a father of many nations. You look at the stars in the sky, and I will make your descendants as numerous as they. You look at the sand on the seashores, and I will make your descendants as numerous as the sand in the sand on the seashore. And you're like, we got to change your name then, okay? Because Abraham, that's just not it. And Abraham, even Abraham thought, I'm just going to get one. I'm just going to get the promised child, Isaac. That was not God's will. God's will was that he would have innumerable offspring. And you look, if you're in here and you've responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he is the Lord and Savior of your life, welcome to being a child of Abraham. There's the Abrahamic covenant fulfilled even in our time. And what I'm trying to help you see, uh, when we say hallowed be his name, we're saying that the name is connected to the personhood. Okay, you can't connect, you cannot disconnect Abraham from his personhood. That's what he, that's who he was he was the father of many nations. Okay? We think of Jacob. They named him Israel. Now you look at Israel all throughout the pages of the Bible, and you could not separate Jacob from Israel because it was his children and their descendants. It is just who he was. Now, you see this really clearly in Matthew 1.21. Matthew 1.21. We can't separate the name and the person. The name and the person are indistinguishable. Okay, so when we see Matthew one twenty one, we see Mary and Joseph, and it says that she's going to bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All right, we've talked about this before. Jesus comes from the Hebrew Yeshua. All right, we get into the Greek Isu, which then we come from Latin to English, we get Jesus, but that was not his name. All right, when they heard this name, they heard, in the first century they heard Yeshua. 
which is where we get the English word in the Old Testament for the name Joshua. Okay, When they said Yeshua, or Joshua is coming to save, they, they remember in the, their forefathers and how Joshua was coming to rule and to reign. That's what Joshua did. He took them into the promised land and he conquered. Okay, They were looking for that kind of guy, which we know Jesus is going to come back to rule and to conquer. And so fulfilling that name, Joshua. But even here as we see in the pages of scripture, the name Jesus means save his people from their sins. They said, you need to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So I want you to connect something. Jesus' name was inextricably linked to who he was. You cannot separate Jesus from him saving people. That's who he was. Now, I, I go and say that in this roundabout way to tell you when we say, hallowed be your name, we're saying this, God be who you are. Vindicate yourself by your very nature. You are God. You are holy. I cannot think about God without thinking about his holiness. See, now if we can think about our prayer life and be praying, hallowed be your name. If we can be praying and thinking about God as holy and transcendent and so far different than you and I, our prayers begin taking on a different tone because he is otherly. We are us. He is him. And he is holy. And when we say, hallowed be your name, we're just saying, God, this is who you are. Distinct, holy, sanctified, sacred, consecrated. And you are completely different than I. So we understand he's our father, but he's holy, he's different. He's, he's, he's there, exalted, but he's here. And there's your prayer, right? I mean, think about the content of your prayer when you think about that. And then the third subpoint, your kingdom come. When we think about the phrase, your kingdom come, we need to recognize the eschatological tone in this term. Uh, when you hear your kingdom come, which you need to understand in uh, Matthew, it's the major theme, one of the major themes of Matthew. As a matter of fact, you would say one of the top three themes of the book of Matthew is the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven synonymous with one another. The kingdom of God. This is what's important to Jesus. As a matter of fact, when Jesus comes onto the scene uh, after he's baptized by, uh, uh, after he's baptized by John the Baptist, uh, he says, you need to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. To recognize this, that Jesus, the first words that he utters out of his mouth when he begins his earthly ministry after his baptism is the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. You want to know what does Jesus prioritize in his earthly ministry? It's the kingdom of God. And he tells us what is our response to the kingdom of God. Mark 1.15, repent and believe in the gospel for the kingdom is at hand. We talk about what does Jesus think about and prioritize in his earthly ministry. And without sounding too harsh or too uncaring. It was not about healing the sick. It was not about raising the dead. It was not about teaching us good and virtuous things. He told us what it was about, the beginning of his ministry. And it's, behold, the kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe. And I'm going to do all these other things to prove to you and show you that the kingdom is at hand. Your, your earthly, your worldly kingdom, there's going to be death, there's going to be despair, there's going to be sickness, but not in my Father's kingdom. In my Father's kingdom, pe the people who have infirmities are going to be made new. The dead will be resurrected, which is all the promises that you and I have in the eschatological kingdom that is coming. Because when the kingdom comes, when we are in the presence of God for eternity, no one's dying of cancer, no one's rolling around in a wheelchair, no one's sitting around and mourning over the, the infirmities and the maladies of their life. This is not happening anymore. You want to know what the miracles we see in the New Testament are for? To prove to you and me that Jesus ushered in the beginning of the kingdom of God. And that's what we look forward to. And that's why when we read this term, your kingdom come, we say we are ready for the consummation of those promises to be ours in Christ Jesus at his return. Now, in your daily prayers, we say your kingdom come. I want you to think about that for a minute. Because when we usually pray at this point, the last things that we're thinking of is the eschatological coming of the kingdom of God. Often the last things that you and I think about are, Jesus, come back. I want you back. Maranatha. Right? I want you, Lord Jesus, come. I want you to come back. That's often not the first thing in our prayers. The problem with that becomes this. If that isn't in the front of our prayers, then our prayers become very self-focused, very temporal. They become all about right now. 
When I begin praying, Lord, let your kingdom come. Let you come. God, we want you back. My prayers begin taking a whole new direction. Right? Instead of now me praying uh, for, you know, my car's a little beat up. It's got a lot of miles on it. Lord, pray for a bonus at work so I can get me a nice car. Okay? Instead, you, you begin thinking, Man, God, we need to keep this car going a little longer because I'm praying for you to come back. I'm not really interested in a new car, but I did recognize there are some other things I can be doing with my finances and my life to be helping other people recognize that you're coming back soon. And my car is not going to impress God when he returns in his power and glory. But what is, is the humility and the obedience of his children who pray, God, I'm focusing on your kingdom. I want it to come. And if make no mistake about it, we understand salvifically that if I'm going to pray your kingdom come, I recognize there's going to be a stopping point when salvation history allows for people to come into the kingdom. Right? You understand where I'm going? If I say your kingdom come, then I'm recognizing that I'm inviting in the opportunity for there to be a stopping point for nobody else has the opportunity to respond to the gospel, turn from their sins and place your trust in Christ. And even if you think, well, we're premillennial, pre-tribulation. Yes, okay, it was strongly mitigated. There may be people coming to Christ, but it still means it starts the process to where there's coming a time where there will be not a single person entering the kingdom of heaven because they responded to the gospel. It will be away from me, you wicked and evildoers. So when you pray for this thing, the kingdom, then you recognize that you should be thinking about kingdom things, which means you begin thinking about if I'm praying for the kingdom to come and then all of my family doesn't know about Jesus, I ought to be thinking more about talking to my family about Jesus. I ought to be thinking more about, ooh, if I'm, if I'm asking the Lord in my prayer, which make no bones about it, you ask the Lord for something, you better know if it's in his will, he's bringing it. And so you're asking the Lord to bring his kingdom, you better know that it's coming. And then yet you're going to also reject and neglect all of those people who need to know the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I'm no longer concerned about my car, the soccer game today. Like, I'm not concerned about winning. I'm concerned that some of those people on the other team could come to know Jesus and that I would live in a way where I would uh, represent the kingdom of God as a kingdom outpost, which is what the church is, that I would represent him in a way where people could understand that there's a kingdom coming and we want you to be a part of it. The problem that we're all going to have, most any of us who don't love the coming kingdom, and I pray to God often in my own prayers, God, let me love your coming kingdom more. That ought to be a prayer that you should pray if you have a problem really looking forward to what is to come. Because one of the problems is in our prayer is if you don't love the coming kingdom, your prayers are not going to be in line with God's will. Because if you're so in love with what the kingdom of the world has to offer, you're not going to be praying according to God's economy. If you're so in love with what the world has to offer you, you're not going to be praying, Lord, let your kingdom come. You're going to be like, I'm great with my kingdom. As a matter of fact, Lord, keep it over there a little longer. I'm still building mine. And then your prayers become, how do I build my kingdom? How do I get my way? How do I get my needs met? And you can just keep it a little longer. I know you've waited a couple of millennia, and I'm sure, you know, I'm going to be gone in 60 or 70 years. If you could just hold off for another 60 or 70 years so I can do my thing. You're never going to pray for God's will because you're only going to be praying for your will. That's why we need to love the coming kingdom and we need to not be in love with the world. As a matter of fact, that's what Jesus says, isn't it? That you can't, you can't love the world and have the love of God in you because you've got to love the kingdom to come and forsake the kingdom of the world. And it ought to be reflected in your prayers, which should give you quite an attitude shift when you say things like, your will be done, which is the fourth here, the fourth subpoint. Your will be done. You and I, as we pray, a prayer centered on God's economy, it's going to focus on his will and not our, our will. And, and there's actually something that we do when we pray according to God's will. It actually solves two problems. One, it allows me to pray for God's will, which is what we need. And if I'm praying for God's will, I'm immediately now not praying for my will in as much as it's not aligned with God's will. Did you see that? It solved two problems. I'm then praying for God's will to be done, and it's actually making my prayers align with God. And so I no longer pray for things contrary to God's will because I'm just praying for his will. And anything that I pray for that is not in his will, I just want to remove and get rid of. And I'm no longer uh, at risk of just going to God as my cosmic genie. 
I'm no longer at risk as I'm praying in his will for me trying to get my desires apart from what his eternal will is. So I get to, as I say, your will be done, I get to ensure that all of the efforts that I expend in my prayer and in my life are fruitful. And that's, that's the benefit here. When you're going to pray in the will of the Lord, and you're saying, I just want to do the will of God. I'm going to pray according to his will. Then I'm going to say, now that I'm praying these, God's going to answer my prayers according to his will. And that means all the things that are happening in my life are more often than not going to be fruitful for the advancement of the kingdom. They're going to be pleasing to my Father. They may be fruitful and they may be pleasing to the Father, but they're often not comfortable, right? The answer to God's will is often not comfortable. And we don't have to look any further than Matthew 26. Matthew 26, starting verse 39, Jesus is saying, is recorded as saying this, going a little further, Jesus fell on his face and he prayed, saying, get this, my Father. So Jesus, this is how Jesus prayed. He always said, my father, and he wants you to pray, my father. And he says this, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. So he's talking about the cup of wrath that God is going to pour on him at Calvary, the suffering, the pain he's going to go through to die for the sins of the world, his namesake, he, he who saves people from their sins. He's, he's now at the precipice of this suffering, and he says, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Think for a moment here. Uh, Jesus is saying, here's what I would like. The provision I would like here would be to not have to go through the forsaking of myself. You're turning away from me and you pouring out the wrath on me that absorbs sinful humanity's uh, consequence. But he said, but you know what? Nevertheless, your will, not my will. And because of that, of Christ submitting to the will of the Father, we, by taking on his righteousness and him absorbing the punishment of our sin on the cross, have a way to be in right relationship with God eternally. All of that to say it's not comfortable always or even delightful often to be in the will of God. And it doesn't mean you're any less in the will of God that you would be going through suffering or calamity or distress. As a matter of fact, it should mean that you ought to go to the Lord for provision, knowing that oftentimes finding yourself in the will of God is going to find yourself not in the most delightful places at times. And every step that Jesus took on the road to Calvary and every second that he had on the cross and every breath that he breathed, he breathed it in prayer to the Father. He breathed it in utter dependence on the Father to sustain him even unto death. And that was Jesus living, even in his prayer life, unto the will of the Father. And my job isn't to make you all smiley about living in the will of the Father. I'm just saying there's a lot of us. I mean, I'm living in the will of the Father right now, and I love my life. And I can imagine there's many of you living in the will of the Father right now that are loving your life. But that's not always how it's going to be. As a matter of fact, Scripture says we're all going to have, uh, we're all going to have trials. We're all going to have to endure painful realities in our lives. And because Scripture tells us that, we can prepare for that. And our prayer life ought to reflect the preparation of being in God's will, whether it be in times of plenty or times of little. Now, there's your four phrases for point number one. Point number two, I want you to write it this way. You need to pray for daily provisions. So we, we went from talking about the transcendence of God, the holiness of God, that God is sitting on his throne and we are his footstool here on earth. And we're talking just about the magnificence of God and then notice, in starting in verse 11, where it says, now I need, you to, I need to pray for my daily bread. We just went and talked about this all-sufficient, infinite God, and now the prayer shifted to say, you, one of eight billion people living on earth today, your father wants to pay, turn his attention as he is being worshipped in eternity, as he is exalted in the heavens, he's turning his attention to you for your needs. Remember that. Don't look past that. Slow down right here and notice that Jesus says, here's then how you need to pray to the exalted God of the universe that you call Father. Give us this day our daily bread. This point, uh, after point number two, the first sub-point for number two is you need to be praying for daily sustenance. Right? Give us this day our daily bread. We need to pray for daily sustenance. Here's a reality that you and I have. We're very needy people. Right? I'm a very needy people. Ask my wife, okay? Very needy. 
okay? And if you're being very honest with yourself, you're a very needy person. You have needs all the time. As a matter of fact, that's often when you go to prayer to God because you need something. You have to admit something about you. You're so needy. I am so needy. And the goodness about God is that he desires to give us our daily needs. Now, this is hard in our culture because we're not an agrarian culture like they were in the first century. And in the first century, uh, the work and labor force looked a lot like this. You wake up, you go somewhere, and you try to get work. And you work your tail off all day. And you get a little bit of money, often not enough to make it through the day. And so when Jesus tells them, you need to pray for your daily needs, they knew what that meant. Because they say, I'm not going to be able to get my needs fed, my kids fed, my wife fed, my home taken care of, if God doesn't provide for me today. Now, completely distant in our culture is this idea that you can't walk into the pantry and pull out all kinds of food. But just because we have layered over a lot of cultural niceties in our, in our lives, whether that be pantries full of food or you know, cars in the driveway, don't forget even for one second that you are utterly dependent every single day, every single second on God's daily provision. Because every one of us in here are one diagnosis away from utter dependence on God. Every one of us in here, just like Maui this last week, uh, who the whole island's burning down. And there's, uh, last I checked, 80 people died. And last I checked from one of our members who literally just flew out of Maui this last week, still 1,000 people unaccounted for. Don't think for one moment that even in paradise that you will find yourself outside the need for daily provision from God. Don't allow our culture to lull you to this kind of idea that you don't need God's provision. The fact that God has still provided for you, even though you haven't sought it from him, is just the common grace of God up to this point in your life. You ought not to forget that God is the provider, and he desires to meet your needs. Think about it. One round of layoffs, one diagnosis, one drought, one famine, one natural disaster— you recognize just how little you actually have. It ought to be a reminder for you to recognize today you need God's provision. Second, you need daily forgiveness. Now, you're a sinful people. I'm a sinful people. I'm reminded of this every single day. Like we are just a dreadful kind of people. Right? And if you're sitting here and you're like, I'm not sinful, are you married in here? Let me ask your spouse. All right? Are you, is your spouse a sinful person? Are you a sinful person? Right? You got kids in here. Your kid's sinful. Okay? I have a nine-month-old. He's already very sinful. Right? He was born that way, as the King David says. Right? I, I know this. We're just, we're just a dreadful people. We're weak. We're selfish. We're too easily entertained by the world around us, aren't we? I mean, this prayer tells us, focus on the kingdom. Focus on the will of God. And we're often too busy focusing on our own kingdom and our own will to give two thoughts about the kingdom of God. And it reminds us just how wicked and self-centered we really are. And it reminds us every day, ooh, I need to be, I need to be, I need to be forgiven. Now, the forgiveness we're talking here isn't justification by faith alone. That's not the forgiveness. It's not the, that's not the kind of forgiveness we're talking about here. We're not talking about the forgiveness that leads to salvation. We're talking about the forgiveness that uh, is in the relationship with God and his children in the daily repentance and the idea that you may be justified in God's sight by Christ, but you still sin. And make no bones about it that your sin creates daily chasms between you and your relationship with God. And you know this to be true. When you find yourself in sin, the last thing you want to reach for is the Bible, isn't it? The last thing you want to do is go to God in prayer. Why? Because your sin creates a chasm between you and the holy God of the universe. And you have in your heart, in my heart, this disdain to open up the Bible and then we are just inundated with the reality of our sin if we're not willing to repent. Right? And that's the reality. We don't want to open up the Bible because we know the Bible, the law, for those who will not repent is a mirror to see who I am. And if I'm unwilling to repent to God on a daily basis, I don't want to open the Bible because I, and I don't want to go to church because I know when I go, I'm going to feel bad. That's, yes, for unrepentant people, that's what the Bible does and that's what going to church does. But for he and she who is willing to repent and go to God for daily forgiveness, it's an ointment for the soul. For you and me, it's the blessing 
that we have the stewards of an inheritance that we have from God, that we can go to him every day, even as weak, wicked people, and we can go and we can say, Lord, forgive me for my sin, and I know that he's going to be faithful to forgive me. I love what Jesus does here, and I don't have a lot of time, but you're going to have to get this, and you can't miss this. Verses 14 and 15 are meant to be attached to verse 12. I don't mean they detached it, but I mean as you read it, you should go back to verse 12 when you read verses 14 and 15. When it says this, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And then we go to verse 12 and we remember, Jesus says, pray for this. Forgive us of our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. I love that in the prayer that we have to our Lord, there is, there is this community component in it. Uh, which is not the first community component in the prayer. You notice in the first phrase of the Lord's Prayer, it didn't say my Father in heaven. What does it say? Our Father in heaven, which makes it what? Communal. This prayer is meant to be a communal prayer. I mean, not not that you don't pray this alone, but it's meant to remind you of the kingdom outpost called the local church. And within that, we're talking about the forgiveness that I have between me and God is, is also linked to this reality that as a, forgiven person, I've got to forgive. That if I'm going to go to God for forgiveness, I can't be a hypocrite. Much like Pastor Evan taught you guys a couple of months ago, I can't, as I lay my gift before the altar, I can't just worship God while I'm in unforgiveness with my brother. I've got to recognize that as my gift is before the altar, which you need to remember, God does want your worship, God does want your gift, but when we're thinking about our relationship with God, God says, If you're going to come worship me, and you're going to come spend time with me, and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift at the altar. You get up, and you go, and you reconcile with your brother. And then, once you've reconciled, then come back to me. All I'm saying from Scripture is that you can't talk about your faith being, it's just between me and God. God doesn't give you room for that. There is no room in Scripture. It's just between me and God. No, 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 no. It's between you and God and every other brother and sister who has been redeemed in Christ Jesus. And you can't think for one minute that you asking for forgiveness can be done isolated from you giving forgiveness to everyone else in your pathway to God. Because you can't. As a matter of fact, God tells you that you must forgive others if you expect your sins to be forgiven. Now, I want to articulate this clearly because you need to recognize this too. That we're not just saying here, well, if you don't forgive, then your Heavenly Father will will never forgive you. That may be a a subtle reality that we have to wrestle with, but the point of this text is not that. The point of this text is the forgiven children of God are going to forgive. Like That's the point. It isn't like, well, I'm trying to now weigh who I should forgive and who I shouldn't so that God will forgive most of my sins but not all of them. This isn't meant for you to use a teeter-totter weight scale to figure out who you're going to forgive and who you're not depending on how it's going to hinder your relationship with God. This is about saying if you're really forgiven, you're really going to forgive other people. That's the gist of this. And if you're going to pray for forgiveness for your debts, you ought to be forgiving the debts of other people. Because remember, we talked about throughout the whole Gospel of Matthew, you've been given a new heart, and you've been given the Holy Spirit, and you have the propensity and the proclivity to live out the commands of God, which says you will forgive because you've been forgiven. I want to leave that there. The last one here, you need to pray for daily deliverance. You know, we're a needy people, we're a sinful people, but we're a tempted people, aren't we? I mean, we're tempted every single day. I mean, we are, we are such a tempted people. We need deliverance. And it says there, Father, deliver us from evil. Lead us not into temptation. This is reality that every single day that you and I are inundated with two things, okay? All right, your hypercharismatics are going to blame everything on Satan, and your hypofundamentalists are going to blame everything on your sin, And all I want to say is there's something that we can do here and recognize that it's two things. It's the schemes of Satan, and it's your fleshly desire for sin. And both of those things are working together every single day in your life to get you to not focus on the kingdom and not focus on the will of God. And what you need every single day in your prayer is prayer for deliverance from things that are going to lead me to sin and a desire to keep me focused on the things of God and his kingdom. That's why we need to pray for deliverance daily deliverance from the schemes of Satan and the desires of my flesh. Because I know the minute that I give in to Satan's schemes and the desires of my flesh, I'm completely being useless for the kingdom of God in that time. 
And I've got to work my way out of this on my own flesh. If I'm not praying God and, and, and asking him for deliverance, then I don't want to read the Bible because I'm in sin and I'm ashamed. I don't want to go to church because I'm ashamed and I don't want the pastor talking to me about my sin. I don't want to go to life group because we just had such a hard time in my marriage because we're fighting back and forth because we haven't been focusing on the kingdom because we've been focusing on the wrong things and we're in sin. And, and then you have to unravel all of that. And you could be weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks before you finally get to this place where the Holy Spirit brings you to your knees and causes you to repent where you can again start focusing on the kingdom and his will. Do we follow me there? Amen. All right. Okay, I didn't say this in the nine, but I thought it was really, really important. Uh, uh, some of you, anybody got a King James version in here? Uh, okay, a couple of you. Okay. Uh, your, your version probably has a longer ending to it, doesn't it? Yay? Nay? Yay? It does. Okay. <laughs> it does. Okay. All right. Uh, <laughs> Some of, some uh, of your versions, particularly the King James Version, are going to have a long ending. Uh, most of your versions probably don't. They probably ended where mine ended, right? Uh, there's uh, a textual variant, which is something you need to understand. You should not be like, oh, no, my whole faith is up in arms. Okay, Here's what you need to recognize. The reason that the ESV, the NASB, many other Bibles... Uh, do not have the long ending, right? For thine is the power of the kingdom and the glory forever. Amen. That was not in the earliest manuscripts. And so... Uh, what that means is, as the scribes were, uh, as the scribes were copying the manuscripts for the Greek New Testament, that means the earliest ones that we can find to the original autographs. As we read the oldest ones that we have access to and we possess right now, that's not found in them. And so, because of that, we have not put it in these passages, because we are not concerned with what tradition says that that passage says. We're concerned with what the writer actually wrote and intended in that passage. And so therefore, you're going to find texts like that, uh, the shorter ending of the Gospel of Mark, First uh, John 5, there's a scribal edition there that your King James Version will have that your ESV it doesn't have. Your NASB doesn't have. Your other versions of your Bible don't have. Because what we're really concerned about is, did the original manuscript, did the autograph have that in there? If it did, I want, to, I want it here because that's the inerrant, infallible word of God. If there's anything else been added to it, I want it out. Even if it's good theology. Even if it talks about the Trinity. Even if it adds some good things to that prayer. I don't want it in there if God didn't intend to put it in there when the apostles wrote it. And so, with that being said, that's why... We have the shorter ending, and I'm not going to preach on that because we don't believe that it's in the original, earliest manuscripts of the Gospel of Matthew. Let's pray. God, thank you for this prayer. Thank you for this. Uh, thank you for the model that we have that we can, we can use to think about you being the holy God, transcendent, above the earth, holy. But God, you're our Father. Even with that, that authority that comes with being our heavenly father, that we would submit ourselves under you, that we would prioritize your kingdom and your will, as we've been talking about for the last year in the Gospel of Matthew. So we just pray that our church as a whole, corporately, that we would submit ourselves under your kingship, under your authority, under your rule. Uh, and then, God, knowing even with all of that, as we ask for your kingdom to come, as we're looking forward to the day where Christ returns and brings us to himself, we also know that there is a daily life we live where we need you, we need provision. Oh God, we need our daily bread. We need the food. Uh, God, we need our clothing. We need to make it back from work safely every day to our family. We have daily provisions. God, we need forgiveness and we need deliverance from our temptation to sin and the schemes of Satan. And all of that we ask. And as a corporate body, as a church, God, we ask that you, uh, God, would, would have your will be done in our life as a congregation and that we would submit ourselves to you. You would provide for us as we seek your kingdom and your righteousness. And we're grateful for that. And as we sing uh, this final song, God, let, let the words of our mouth match the intentions of our heart as we sing loud to you. For your glory, for the name of your Son, we pray. Amen.